things, displaying who he is. So uh, two kind of separate sections, we're going to read them both and actually talk about them both. Luke chapter 7, I'm going to start reading at verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings, that's Jesus, he had been teaching, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by this centurion. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As they drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and he touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for what we get to read here today, that Jesus is a healer and a life giver. We pray that you would increase our faith in him, in you. Open your word to us, unstop our ears and remove the scales from our eyes, soften our hearts that we might see Jesus, know him more fully and love him more perfectly today. We pray this in his name, amen. You know, when we talk about faith or belief, it uh, has an f- interesting place in our culture today. Because on the one hand, you know, faith is not something that you feel like you can talk about in public. It's something that's pushed kind of to the margins of our culture. But on the other hand, we actually like to talk about faith and belief all of the time. Whenever you hear uh, an athlete interviewed after a big game, they say things like, you know, we just had to kind of keep the faith. Uh, We just had to believe, and that's why we won. We're not really sure what they were believing in, but there was that belief. In fact, Nike, like any good marketer, has kind of picked up on this, and this T-shirt you may be able to find at your local store, always believe. Again, Nike doesn't necessarily tell us what to believe in, but belief is important, they say. In fact, Nike came out with a pretty controversial ad campaign a couple of years ago 
with Colin Kaepernick saying, believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything. Well, like every controversial thing in our society, uh, the internet has responded to these, and, and, and that's, there's actually now kind of a series of ads like this one. Believe in something, says Thanos, even if it means sacrificing you know, half of everything. There's the, uh, the George Costanza. It's not a lie if you believe it. Just do it. Uh, there is, you know, the Tom Cruise, believe in something even if it means believing in a religion based on aliens. Just do it. Uh, we've got, you know, stormtroopers in this, shoot at something even if it means missing everything. Just do it. We've got cats even kind of coming, believe in something even if it means pooping on the floor. I like the little cat paw print here with the just do it. And the dogs can't be left out, believe in something even if it means eating everything. Just eat it. I like the tagline there. Uh, and then here's Winnie the Pooh. People say that nothing is impossible, but I do nothing every day. Just poo it. And then, you know, I think could not be better said really than this. Uh, I am Groot. I am Groot. Belief. What is it all about? What does it mean to have faith? And what is our faith in? That's really what we're going to explore this morning. We're going to talk about what God-honoring biblical faith is all about. And we're going to look at it actually in two, uh, two points. So we'll talk about really what the heart of faith is. What's at the center of faith? What is faith really all about? What is the kind of faith that Jesus himself marvels at like he does here with this centurion? And then we'll move to the object of our faith. So the heart of faith and the object of our faith. Let's look at the first part, the heart of faith. What's at the center of what it means to believe? What's at the center of what it means to have faith? Well, in a lot of ways, I think it's this phrase. It is the humble reliance upon the authority of Jesus, even when things are difficult. Let me say that again. It is humble reliance on the authority of Jesus, even in difficult situations. That's really the heart, in many ways, of what it means to believe, what it means to have faith. When we open up and we see this centurion, we see him responding really in a pretty amazing way. We see him responding in a way that we would call deep humility. Look again at verse 6. Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I don't presume even to come to you. A few weeks ago, we saw Jesus call Peter, and Peter, upon seeing clearly who Jesus was, upon recognizing Jesus' holiness, do you remember what happened? He fell on his face, on his knees, and he said, go away, I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter realized his own sinfulness when he was faced with Jesus. The same thing actually happens here with this centurion. His first and gut response is humility. He recognizes his own unworthiness. Humility, I don't know if you've know, noticed this, but it's kind of having a moment in our culture. It's really popular to be humbled by things these days. Uh, when you read about leadership in all of the business books or articles, they're always talking about humble leaders are always the best leaders. Now, of course, we know this. The Bible's been saying this actually for quite some time. But interestingly, humility, even though it's pretty popular, maybe not quite what it used to be. 
There's an article that came out about this in the Wall Street Journal. I'm going to read you a little bit of this article about how humility is kind of not quite what it once was. Lately, it's pro forma, goes the article, possibly even mandatory for politicians, athletes, celebrities, and other public figures to be vocally and vigorously humbled by every honor awarded, every prize won, every job offered, record broken, pound lost, shout out received, like copped, and thumb upped. Driving at random into the internet and social media, media finds this new humility everywhere. A soap opera actress, actress on tour is humbled by the outpouring of love from fans. Comedians are humbled by big laughs. Yoga practitioners are humbled by achieving difficult poses. Athletes are humbled by good days on the field. Christmas volunteers are humbled by their own generosity and holiday spirit. And yet none of these people sound very humbled at all. On the contrary, they all seem exceedingly proud of themselves, hashtagging their humility to advertise their own status, success, sprightliness, generosity, moral superiority, and luck. When did humility get so cocky? If you're a San Antonio Spurs fan, you've actually seen, and especially if you've been a fan for a while, you've seen real humility at work. You know, David Robinson is one of the best basketball players that's ever lived. NBA Hall of Fame, amazing career, one of the 50 best basketball players in the world in history. But when the Spurs drafted Tim, Robin, uh, Tim Duncan, who would go on to become a Hall of Famer himself, Robinson had to not only share the spotlight, but sometimes even step out of it completely. And Robinson, who is a Christian, actually explains this process in an article from Sports Illustrated. Listen to what he says and pick up on the undercurrent of humility here. He said, I can't overstate how important my faith has been to me as an athlete and as a person. It's helped me deal with so many things, including matters of ego and pride. For instance, I can't deny that it felt weird to see Tim standing on the podium with a finals MVP trophy. I was thinking, man, never have I come to the end of a tournament and not been the one holding that trophy. It was hard. But I thought about the Bible story of David and Goliath. David helped King Saul win a battle, but the king wasn't happy because, David had killed, or because he had killed thousands and David had killed ten thousands. So King Saul couldn't enjoy the victory because he was thinking about David getting more credit than he was. I'm blessed that God has given me the ability to just enjoy the victory. So Tim, Tim killed ten thousands. That's great. I'm happy for him. You hear that humility? Especially powerful when it comes from a powerful person especially powerful when it comes from somebody who has achieved, especially powerful when it comes from somebody who really has cultural importance, like Tim Duncan, like this centurion here, actually. This is a man who would have had a great deal of cultural power. A centurion in the Roman army would have commanded a hundred soldiers. And remember, the, the Roman army is kind of governing things here, and to keep the Pax Romana, the, you know, the, the Roman peace, the thing that makes it nice to drive down a street and not hit a pothole, the thing that keeps you from always being invaded barbarian, by barbarians. In order to keep that peace, there had to be a lot of soldiers around. It was a military state. So there was a lot of soldiers, and to command 100 soldiers was a big deal. In fact, you got paid really well for it, and you actually also had a lot of cultural and political power in that day. And this man, in fact, not only had cultural and political power, but really a lot of his 
uh, a lot of his power and his influence was, was probably really well-deserved. He sounds like a really good guy. His character actually had won him a lot of honor and acclaim, it sounds like. But listen to what he says about authority. Listen to what he says. In fact, this is funny. He gives Jesus an illustration to make his point. Jesus is usually the one giving the illustrations. Jesus is usually the one giving the parables. But listen to what this centurion says to Jesus, verse 8 or verse 7. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. See, what this centurion understands is a humble reliance not on his authority, but on Jesus' authority. He has transferred his trust from his own power, considerable as it was, to the power of the one who has the authority over life and death. What he sees very clearly when he looks at Jesus is one who has the authority of creator, one who has the authority of healer, one who has the authority of the giver of life. You know, you really can break down the world into two kind of distinct worldviews. You have the worldview of human accomplishment and the worldview of divine achievement. And really, every religion outside of Christianity in the world and really in history has all fallen under worldview one, the worldview of human accomplishment. Because there's always something you've got to do in order to reach nirvana or peace or heaven or whatever it is. There's always some sort of moral code to fulfill. There's always some sort of journey that you have to take. There's always some sort of ritual that has to be processed in order to earn the right to finally have a good in with God. Interestingly, that's exactly what these Jews do when they come to, this, to, to Jesus, isn't it? They say, this is a man who's really worthy of being healed. This is a man who not only has this cultural and political power, but man, he's really nice to us. He's really well thought of. He's used his power and his wealth to build our synagogue. If ever there was a guy who had bargaining power, this is the guy. But you know what? The centurion actually appeals to Jesus on the basis of worldview number two. A worldview that says that we are made right with God, not based on what we do, but what He has done. That we actually have our own identity, that we are who we are, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. This centurion gets it at the deepest level. He is humbly clinging to the authority of someone else, and that authority is Jesus. Let's pause for just a second to kind of ask some questions about what this means. What does it mean in your life to humbly cling to the authority of Jesus? Well, maybe there are times in your life where your desires just aren't really matching up with what you know to be the revealed truth of what God desires. What's the answer there? Well, it's humble reliance on the authority of Jesus. Or maybe there's a time in your life where your desires are not matching your hopes and dreams or your situation is not matching your hopes and dreams, right? You have these grand desires. I want children. I want a happy marriage. I want a job that actually is fulfilling. 
I want my parents or my brother or my sister or my next door neighbor to know Jesus and they seem to be walking far away. But for whatever reason, the situation is that those things just don't seem to be happening. What do we do? What do we cling to? It's humble reliance upon the authority of Jesus. What about the times when all that we can see is, you know, two feet in front of our face? (laughs) Where we have no idea what's next. We have no idea what the coming years are going to hold. What do we do? Humble reliance upon the authority of Jesus. That's the faith displayed by this centurion, a faith that Jesus himself marvels at. And that's the heart, the core of what it means for you and I to live by faith as well. All right, let's turn to that second part. We've seen kind of the heart of faith. Let's talk about the object of faith. And I want you to really listen. If you've dozed off, wake up, because this is important. (laughs) The amount of faith you have is not as important as the one in whom you place your faith. The amount of faith you have will not get you healed from your sickness. The amount of faith you have will not give you better relationships. The amount of faith you have will not make all of your problems go away. But the object of your faith has the power to heal and restore and give life. That is extremely important. Our faith is important. It is the rope that ties us to the tree. But if it is not tied to the branch, or if that branch is rotten, then that rope is going to do absolutely no good at all. It is the object of our faith that saves us, not our amount of faith. So who is this object? Let's look at uh, what he looks like through this story. We learn a lot about Jesus, actually, through this, particularly the story of the widow's son. Let me just recap it a little bit. Jesus and his disciples, and at this point, a little crowd that's following them, have traveled from one town to another, and they've come upon this little town called Nain. It's small. It's like a village. And as they are entering the town, they actually come upon a funeral procession. In those days, probably on the same day that the person would have died, they would have had a procession that went through the town and then outside the city gates where that person would be buried. And the the dead person was usually put kind of on this wooden plank and then wrapped with burial linens. That's this word buyer that we see here. That's this wooden plank, kind of an open coffin. And they would carry him or her through the town mourning, singing, wailing, crying, and mourning. And what we have here is Jesus coming up on not only a man who's died, but Luke tells us he is a very particular kind of person. He is the only son of a widow. A widow, her husband has died, and now her only son has died. Now, just pay attention here because this is important. In those times, most of the time, women were not self-sufficient. Most of the time, women were not earning their own money, so they were dependent upon a husband to provide for them. And when your husband died, if you were a woman, if you were a widow, that was a dangerous time. It meant really that you were unprotected. It meant in a lot of ways that you really didn't have a lot of hope for the future, for protection, for wealth, for for sustenance even, unless you had sons. And if you had sons, then those sons would kind of fill the spot that the father was supposed to take, and they would provide for the mother. If you had sons, you could be cared for for a long time for the rest of your life. But here's a woman whose husband has died, and now her only son has died. 
She's a woman that has nothing. She is not only mourning the loss of a child and the way that Jesus speaks to this, to this, to this young man, it sounds like he's probably fairly young. She's not only mourning the loss of her child, she's also knowing the hopelessness that is probably coming in her life. And what do we hear Luke say Jesus' motivation is in this passage? Jesus approaches this woman, and Luke tells us he has compassion. Isn't that just beautiful? To just pause and think about that. You know, she didn't ask for a healing. There was no letter sent that said, hey, can you come and do this? Jesus simply walked up upon something sad, and it made him sad. He had compassion on a young man who had died and compassion on the mother who had lost everything. And Luke tells us he comes to her and he says, don't cry. Can you hear the compassion in those words? It's almost like he's wiping her tears away and putting his arm around her. Don't weep. And then he shows her why. And he reaches up and he touches this young boy and says, arise. And he gets up. And then in just beautiful fashion, Luke tells us that Jesus then gives the boy back to his mother. As if to say, now you are whole. Now you are well. Now you are protected. Friends, if you're a Christian, this is the one you follow. You follow a compassionate Savior. You follow a Savior who loves to make broken people whole. You follow a Savior who loves to come and initiate that beautiful healing to one who is mourning. That's who we follow. Isn't that astounding? So what do we do with this? How do we respond to such wonder? How do we respond to this beautiful picture that Jesus has actually broken in and done something? Well, we respond really like these crowds did. I don't know if you picked up on this, but the crowds, sometimes when you read through the Gospels, uh, the words on the lips of the crowds can be really, really important, and they're really important here because they're really proclaiming some deep theology. What they say is, God has visited his people. This is the kind of language that actually shows up in the Old Testament all the time, and it's always about God entering in to the difficulty and the brokenness of his people and coming with power to heal. That's what they say. God has visited his people. God has shown up into our world of brokenness and sickness and death and darkness. Jesus has come to bring healing and light and life. It's really at this point when I was writing the sermon that I had this strong temptation to kind of hedge all of our bets, to say, yeah, this is true, but here's the thing. God doesn't always answer your prayers the way you want him to. And sometimes people will stay sick. And sometimes the sad things will stay sad. That is true. But I want us to just camp out here for a minute, okay? And just ask ourselves, do we believe that Jesus has the power to heal? Do we believe that Jesus has the power to heal physically, yes, but also emotionally, Mentally, relationally, is there something in your life that you think, you know, yeah, I believe Jesus heals, but I mean, that thing is just way too bad. He could never touch that. 
It's not true. Do we believe that Jesus actually breaks into this world and brings life and light where there is darkness and death? Because he does. Do we believe that Jesus is really compassionate? That he really does want to wipe away the tears from every eye? That he really does raise to life that which was dead? Do we believe it? Because, friends, it's displayed here really clearly. This is the Savior we have, a Savior whose compassion drives him to heal, drives him to give life, drives him to put the pieces back together, and that's what we know he's doing. The beautiful picture that the Apostle John sees in Revelation is of a time when no one will cry. (laughs) There will be no weeping mothers. There will be no sad people. As Frodo says it in the Lord of the Rings, all of the sad things will come untrue. That is what our Lord is doing. Do we believe it today? Let's pray. Father, what a a wonderful time to, uh, to just reflect on your compassion, to reflect on your authority, to reflect on your power to heal and to make new. Lord, we come with a lot of broken things. The list is long in my heart. How glorious that we get to come to you, the one who delights in fixing broken things, the one who delights in healing, the one who has the authority over sickness and sin and death and merely can say the word and it happens the one who has the compassion to come and enter into our lives, into the darkness in which we live in, and to bring light and healing and life. Lord, will you soften our hearts that we would believe that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.